my graduate thesis was a documentary where I sold an idea to NBC, uh, and they financed my graduate thesis. And that film, that was an hour documentary, won an Emmy. And uh, I graduated. I had my film under my arm, and I went throughout Hollywood you know, seeking other employment within the studio system, and I couldn't get any. That was Moctezuma Esparza, an award-winning film and television producer, and that was just one of the many challenges he had to overcome over his illustrious career, but it wasn't the first. This is MOB, Masterminds of Business, and I'm Gerald Johnson. Masterminds of Business is an uplifting and informative show about the accomplishments and challenges that entrepreneurs and corporate leaders face during their careers. Our guests have mastered the four building blocks of business, processes, people, customers, and resources through hard work and perseverance. We hope you'll be inspired by the tenacity of our masterminds giving you the courage and the knowledge to conquer the hurdles that you face in your own life and career. We will begin with Mr. Moctezuma Esparza. Born and raised in East L.A., Mr. Esparza attended UCLA, where he obtained a bachelor's and a master's of fine arts. He worked with Robert Redford, Martin Sheen, Jennifer Lopez, Halle Berry, Jimmy Smith, Robert Duvall, and that's just to name a few. His works include Walkout, introducing Dorothy Dandridge, and Selena. He established the Maya Cinema movie chain in markets with a strong Latino presence. With so many accolades in film and television production, you might think he was born to be an entertainment mastermind. But that wasn't the case. His story begins in the late 1960s. Thank you for agreeing to do this show, first of all. Well, I look forward to it. It's, um, it's a great opportunity to uh, share, and I'm privileged and honored to be part of your programming. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So let's jump right into this. So were you the geeky kid, the too cool for school, or the tough guy when you were growing up? <laughs> uh, no, I was the geeky kid. Uh, I had to figure out how to protect myself from the tough guys, yeah. So I had a couple of bodyguards when I was a kid, other kids who uh, took a liking to me and protected me from the tough guys. So uh, I was fortunate in that regard. Good. Did you always know that you wanted to go into the entertainment industry? Uh, not at all. I was already graduated with my bachelor's degree from UCLA in film, and I was applying to grad school in government and political science and urban studies that I finally realized that what I really was going to do with my life was be involved in the entertainment industry because I couldn't get into any of the other graduate programs I wanted, but the film school at UCLA wanted me back. So I had a deep, a deep, deep uh, reflection on this and a dark night of the soul where I reflected on what it was that I was going to do with my life. And happily, a professor, Eliseo Taylor at UCLA, who was in the film school, African-American, the only uh, professor there of, of color at the time, urged me to come back, told me that as an organizer, I had the skill set to be a producer. And that that's what I was. I was a producer. And that opened up a new possibility for me, that, that idea. And I committed myself and I went to UCLA Graduate School where I really did learn uh, a craft. Good. So when you graduated from UCLA, where did you get your first job? What did you do? My first job 
was in the film industry while I was still an undergrad, and I was a consultant to Sesame Street. They were developing a bilingual education component to their work, and they wanted to have some episodes, some segments in their show uh, that would include Latino culture, Mexican-American culture. And so I pitched myself. I was a consultant on the one side in terms of the development of their bilingual education program because I had background there. And then I pitched myself as a producer to actually make their short film segments, and they gave me a small contract. Uh, that was my first uh, uh, assignment. So and, uh, it went quite well. I was so, very happy with it. So stop right there. You were your first job. You were already a consultant. You never really worked for someone else. You just started right out the gate as a consultant. As a producer, yes. I never really worked for anybody except for one gig. I was after I graduated with my master's in fine art uh, from UCLA. My graduate thesis was a documentary where I sold an idea to NBC and they financed my graduate thesis, and that film, that was an hour documentary, won an Emmy. I graduated, I had my film under my arm, and I went throughout Hollywood, you know, seeking other employment within the studio system, and I couldn't get any. So I heard about uh, Via Alegre, a bilingual educational show that was going to be similar in style and content to Sesame Street. Uh, I created a, a training program where I took young Latinos and Latinas, put them through a boot camp in filmmaking. And out of that, I got to know the folks, and they offered me a job as a producer on the series. So straight out of college, I got a network job on PBS show as a producer of The Alegre. I was the film producer for the show. There were four producers. I was 24 years old, and that was my first meaningful job after the documentary that I had done for NBC. And after that, I pretty much uh, haven't worked for anyone as an employee since in the film industry. I set up my own company, have been independent since then. So wait just a second. So you set up your own company. How did you get the funds to set up your company? How did you go about doing that? I took my savings as a producer and rented a small office and hired my staff from the Alegre to stay with me, and I went out and immediately started pitching to do film projects for other television series that were similar, uh, that were children's series. So I got a contract to do films for Vegetable Soup, The Electric Company. Oh, I remember that. Uh, Infinity Factory. With those contracts, I was able to keep my team together and to finance the launch of my small production company. So the way the business would work is different production companies would bid on a job and then the company that bid the lowest price would get to produce the TV show? No, it wasn't a low-cost kind of thing. The entertainment industry is not about the lowest cost. It's about quality entertainment and fulfilling the content needs or the entertainment needs or the story needs of the end user. Uh, now, the, the production cost is negotiated, but it's not about the lowest cost. So after you started producing the shows like The Electric Company and those type of shows, where did you go from there? I learned of a documentary series that was being done by McGraw-Hill Broadcasting. Uh, I made a proposal to them, having done a one-hour documentary, which won an Emmy, 
and they were going to do a series on Mexican-Americans in the United States called La Raza Series. And they had hired a um, well-known New York producer who was white uh, to do this series, and there was a lot of criticism that they had not reached out to Latinos. So they decided that they needed to do that, and I was one of the people they interviewed. And I was fortunate at that particular time. There weren't too many people who had a Master of Fine Arts and who had a a film and an Emmy, and so I was well-positioned. I was fortunate. And I got the contract to do uh, three more hours for them, and then later that was renewed, and I did documentaries from McGraw-Hill on this series for the next six years. So it's fair to say that your career started in television and then worked itself towards towards the movie industry. That's correct. I did documentaries and public affairs commercials and children's programming for about 10 years, then made my transition over in long-form theatrical movies and long-form television content. My so, first film, my first movie, or rather, uh, was in 1977 while I was still doing documentaries. It was a movie called Only Once in a Lifetime, and it was a, uh, an art film, I would say, today, as I look back on it. And although the film was well-made and was invited to a lot of film festivals, it was invited to the Deauville Film Festival in, in France and others, I lost all the money. I lost quite a bit of money, and so did a few other investors. And I learned some very important lessons. One, that movies are commerce because they cost so much money. And if you're making a movie that is an art film, well, then you have to be able to make it with resources that are not seeking to be able to get their money back. And it's a different kind of uh, commerce. It's it's, uh, art, really, that is dependent on patrons and philanthropy. But if you're making movies for an audience, that's commerce. And you have to know what audience you're making it for, and you've got to have a plan for how you're going to get the money back of your investors or of your financiers or of the studios. And and that's a combination of uh, making something that people want to watch, making it well, quality, keeping uppermost in mind that it's about entertainment. How much does a film like that cost in general? Or back then, how much did it cost to produce that film? You're talking about the first film that yes, I did? Yes, yes. The budget, of, this is 1977, 76, and I think we spent about $300,000, which in today's world is easily more than $2 million. Wow. When you go about making a film, is there a way of costing it out, saying we need to get it in X amount of movie theaters and we need to get Y amount of moviegoers to see this film and this is how we're going to do it? Is that all marketed out before the film is made? Well, certainly that's the way studios do it. Independent producers generally don't think that way because independent producers are really more concerned with just getting the movie made. That's usually where they get into trouble. So part of the reason that I think I've had a career is that I was able to shift my thinking from just wanting to get my movie made to also thinking about how do I get the investor's money back? What's the market for this film? How is it going to earn its production costs back? And so those are questions that are unique to every single project. I learned very quickly that independent films are very, very risky, and very few of them. Very, very few of them ever get their money back. 
And so I shifted to making movies for networks and studios where they were the financiers uh, and they were the end users because an end user uh, has a way to monetize the product by uh, either putting it through its distribution channels or putting it on its network air, selling advertising. And, and then they're concerned with getting the money back because they invested it and they greenlit it and they provided the capital for making it. And then my concern is different. My concern is then pitching them a project that they want to make, that they feel that they can get their money back with, that I want to do. So then it becomes a marriage, right? It's a project I want to do that they want to do. Then my training and thinking about film as both art, commerce, and entertainment became key in my being able to be successful with the studios and networks in proposing projects to them that they could see that they could make successful for themselves. We've just learned how Moctezuma Esparza got his start as a television and film producer and how he recovered from the failure of his first film. This is MOB, Masterminds of Business, and I'm Gerald Johnson. This is the first episode, and if you like what you hear, write a review. And please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. A couple of quick programming notes. If you want to get in touch with us here at MOB, you can reach us at Sabacon Ideas on Twitter and Facebook. That's S-A-B-A-C-O-N-I-D-E-A-S. Or visit us on the web at sabacon.net. We like being inspired to do great things. So if you're a mastermind and have a great story to tell or a question to ask, please reach out. I'm Gerald Johnson, and this is MOB, Masterminds of Business. Coming up, how Moctezuma found a purpose for his television and film projects and got his career back on track. So my strategy coming out of that failure was to then think about, okay, I'm interested in making movies that are about Latinos, that change the image of Latinos in the world. I'm interested in promoting the culture and the history. And that was a, a declaration that I made about what my career would be about early on. So that gave me a, a path. It a gave purpose. A purpose, exactly. So I then decided, okay, then I'm going to look for projects that are pre-sold, that is, that already have an audience that is interested in them. So I looked at literature and the top books that were about Latino culture and history. And so I found a couple of books that fit that. Um, and then I went to find out if the rights were available. And, uh, and then I decided, okay, I've got to figure out how if I'm, I'm going to get the rights to these projects, I have to option them, I have to have money. And then I've got to have money to hire writers to create the scripts. And I've got to have money to budget them and to pull together a team so that I have a proposal, a package that I can take to networks and studios and say, here's a project, here's a script, here's the director, here's the lead actor that I'm interested in, and put a package together that I could then sell. When you decided to purchase the book rights for these books, how did you determine how much to pay? Well, these were all published books that were quite noteworthy. They were, they were successful books. They had sales and they had positive reviews and they were used in colleges and universities to teach Latino literature. Uh, so they had value. 
right? It wasn't like these were books that nobody knew about. That was part of the key, was finding books that had an audience that would give me something that was pre-sold, so to speak. Right. It, it becomes a, a negotiation. You know, you talk to the agents representing the books, and you make an offer. You make a, an offer that you think is uh, reasonable by finding out, researching what other similar books might have uh, optioned for or sold for. Uh, you don't want to make an offer that's too high, but you don't want to make one that's too low, too low either. Be, yeah, because then they won't they won't talk to you. They anymore. won't talk to you anymore. Does the author of the books normally get a percentage of the movie's net profit? Yes, yes, of course, they get a percentage of net profit. That's fairly typical. So I, I then putting all this together, I wrote a proposal to the Endowment of the Humanities and to the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, and found partners that could support me. So I went to national civil rights organizations to say, listen, this is something that I think will be good for our community. Uh, I'd like to be able to develop these books. Uh, two of the books, one was uh, The Milagro Beanfield War, which I got to make into a movie with Robert Redford. The other one was With His Pistol in His Hand, which was a book by Dr. Américo Paredes about the story of Gregorio Cortez. And I got to make that movie, too. It was about Gregorio Cortez. And there were a couple of other books that didn't make it. But this became something that was attractive, so I got the support of these national groups. And with their endorsement and uh, going to the Endowment of the Humanities, uh, I was able to get enough money to do this development work. It was successful. You know, I, I managed to get the first movie made, The Ballad of Gregorio Cortez, by pre-selling it to PBS. They wanted it. And then I also sold uh, foreign television rights to Germany, and with that was able to put together the budget, which back in 1980 was a million two. Wow. So it seems like your strategy was to find projects with a built-in audience already and then kind of pre-sell those projects to networks and studios. That's the way almost all producers who are successful in Hollywood work. Did you ever make movies and take it straight to the big screen yourself? That's a risky proposition. You have to be willing to risk losing all your money. Right. And that's not a way that, uh, that's not a strategy that's that a strategy. allows you to be successful over the long term. We have been listening to Moctezuma Esparza tell us how he overcame some of the obstacles in his career. He has produced many television shows and films that improve the image of Latinos. His works have promoted Latino history and culture all over the world. But since Moctezuma didn't own the rights to the movies and television shows that he produced, he was not able to partake in the real wealth his projects generated. I'm Gerald Johnson, and this is MOB, Masterminds of Business. And if you want to get in contact with us here at MOB, you can reach us at Sabacon Ideas on Twitter and Facebook. That's S-A-B-A-C-O-N-I-D-E-A-S. Or visit us on the web at sabacon.net. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. And if you're a mastermind and you have a great story to tell or a question to ask, please reach out. We'd love to hear from you. We pick up our story with Mr. Esparza embarking on the launch of a new movie theater chain in areas with large Latino populations. What led you to open your first movie theater? How did you go from making the movies to owning the theaters? Well, my career was such that almost all the movies I made, 
were owned by a network or a studio. So it's very difficult to create real capital, wealth, wealth accumulation that would allow me to do other things. And where I had been successful before in doing something that was important and valuable to the Latino community was I developed a cable television company. I got uh, the franchise for East Los Angeles from the county of L.A. to build a cable TV system. It took me three years to raise the money for it. It was built, and it was successful, although it had its ups and downs. And when I finally... Uh, after 23 years, I had to pay back all of my investors, and the company was sold. I was looking for what I could continue to do that would allow me to do something in entertainment that would be something valuable to Latino communities in particular, but any community where I could find a place that I could build a movie theater. And so I chose to stay in the entertainment field, delivery of entertainment, with movie theaters. I love movie theaters. I love movies. I grew up going to movie theaters. That's how I got a a picture into the world uh, by watching movies. I knew that there was a huge opportunity in almost all the minority communities of the United States because there were, in the late 90s when I made this choice, almost no modern, state-of-the-art, megaplex movie theaters in any Latino or African-American community in the United States, with the exception of a few theaters that Magic Johnson had done. So I saw that as an opportunity where I could make a difference and be of service, provide jobs and economic development to do what I love. Where was your first movie theater? And did you do a lot of research before building it? Yes, of course. I had to do a tremendous amount of research over several years, finding studies and reports and sources of information hiring a few consultants here and there and commissioning studies because that's what's necessary in order to be able to go to a bank and say, loan me $15 million so that I can build this movie theater that's going to cost $25 million, and go to other investors and say, look, here's a, a business opportunity and here are the market studies and the that show that there's an opportunity here and here's a business plan that shows that uh, we can be successful. So, yes, I spent years developing that. I started with uh, my idea to do movie theaters in 1999, and it took five years before I got the first one done, and a tremendous amount of time and money in developing the plan to be able to get it done. And the first one was in Salinas, California, because that was uh, the first place where I was able to get land. I was bought in downtown uh, so that the city would support... uh, the strategy to put a movie theater downtown. That was probably the fifth location that I went after, and prior locations, which were in different cities, all throughout California and Los Angeles. I discovered that where I wanted to go, the local municipalities typically would hire consultants for redevelopment agency projects, and the consultants wouldn't support me because I didn't have an existing theater, so I didn't have a track record. And they were not going to take the risk of saying, yes, city, you should back this project and uh, provide some support uh, where there was no track record. So what I discovered was that if I owned the land, the consultants were really pretty much uh, powerless to keep me out. 
yeah, you ha- you own the land. You can build what you want to build as long as you can get a permit. <laughs> yes, yes, and I can get the financing. So it took me five years to figure that out and quite a bit of money and to set up a successful strategy, and I was able to do it in Salinas. So you started in Salinas. What's the competition like between the Regals and the AMCs of the world? Well, there was a, there is a Cinemark that was three miles away, just far enough away so that we could have a trade area, uh, enough of a population to the south and to the east and to the west, that we could say that this could be successful, and it was. When a new movie theater opens, there's a lot of buzz about the business. So usually the sales are up. You know, everybody wants to check out the new movie theater. How did you keep that excitement from wearing off? What business practices did you put in place? Well, a key part of this was uh, finding a management team uh, that had the same vision and that was committed to customer service, honoring the people that we serve. So Frank Afar was someone that uh, had run the circuit for Edward Cinemas, which was a very large, very successful theater circuit. And I was uh, fortunate that he joined our company. And so he was able to take established business practices for a successful circuit and apply them to our locations and to even further enhance them so that we have added public services to each of our theaters. We have a scholarship program. We have film series. We have indie film series. We have nonprofit events. We have Maya Cares, where we show movies for children that have developmental problems, where we turn the sound down, we turn the lights up a little bit. We built into our theaters cry rooms, that is, rooms with anywhere from 6 to 14 seats, where a family with a baby that might be crying would be able to go and reserve that room and enjoy the movie themselves with their own sound system. So we completely tailored our movie theaters to meet the needs and the cultural preferences of our local market, designed them so that they would be attractive to anyone who lived nearby. So it didn't matter what your background was. If our theater was nearer to you than another theater, we were able to predict that you would want to go to our theater be the nicest in the area. So you became part of the community. It seems like you embedded yourself in the community and you offered a lot of services that other movie theaters were not. Would that be fair? That's what we did. That brings us to Maya Cinemas in Pittsburgh. What made you take over that location? Well, it was already closed when we went there. It was boarded up. So it was a failed movie theater location. It had been successful many, many years ago, more than 10 years before. But other movie theaters opened up in the general area that were nicer, that had stadium seating. And that location, which was an old-fashioned theater, declined and declined to the point that it was boarded up. So what we did is that we saw an opportunity to completely renovate it, to gut it, to take it down to the six walls, you know, the four walls plus the floor and the Mm -hmm. ceiling, and completely redo it as if it were a brand-new, modern, state-of-the-art megaplex movie theater, and to bring the same amenities and, and customer service respect that we had already developed in our two earlier theaters, and that's what we did. We spent a tremendous amount of money. It's like a brand-new theater. Changed it completely, 
and brought all of the things that we've been doing elsewhere. I got to tell you, I grew up in Brooklyn, and uh, one of my favorite things in Brooklyn is White Castle hamburgers. And I visited this spot, Century Plaza, and you had White Castle ham. I was floored. You had White Castle hamburgers in the movie theater. That was the first time I've ever seen that. Well, we look to uh, you know provide people what's going to make them happy and uh, have a great experience. And so there was uh, an interest in that, and so we provided it is it is a beautiful movie theater. I've been there several times. I always go to that movie theater, and it's the newest one in the East Bay, and I think it's having a great impact. Which one of, of your movie theaters, hopefully that's the one, is your number one performing movie theater? Well, actually, our theater in Bakersfield and Fresno are neck and neck, do very, very well. And Pittsburgh is, is also quite successful. We have to make Pittsburgh number one. We, we're going to try and upset the apple cart. And so next time you do one of these interviews, you're going to say, you know, our Century Plaza movie theater is the number one movie theater. Just out of curiosity, did you have it an easier time because Brendan Movie Theater had closed down? Well, yes. There was already an existing theater and a landlord who wanted us there. Uh, and so in some ways, uh, it was easier. But it was also challenging because we had to invest a tremendous amount of money completely renovated in a situation where we weren't going to own the theater. Right. We're a tenant. We're a tenant. So that took a, a huge commitment for us to put in the amount of money, millions and millions, to right. make that uh, theater really be a first-rate, beautiful theater. Long-term lease, I got to say, probably a long-term lease. Yes. Um, very, very long. <laughs> very, very long. What type of sales strategies do you employ? Well, we, we rely on providing a broad bookings of programming, uh, including having a family day, a senior day, uh, having indie film festivals, uh, having classic film festivals, and just being the best theater for people, no matter who they are, uh, who live near us. So that and word of mouth, I mean, you could go on to Yelp any of the social media, and we always are more highly rated than any of the theaters in Europe. That's good. You know, one of the things I noticed is you show Spanish language movies, movies that, let's say, Regal and AMC do not. Well, actually, they do, but they don't always show it in all their theaters. So, you know, if a movie is available, that is, it's being distributed, and it's a quality movie, we want to show it. If there's an audience that wants it, you know, we're definitely going to book it. At the same time, you know, if there is a, a significant population that wants a particular movie, we're going to book it. So our interest is in serving not only the Latino community, but all the communities that live in our trade area and showing movies that they would like to see. Do you notice that Regals and AMC do things differently now that you're there, specifically go after you in terms of competition? Do you notice they change their behavior once your movie theater opens? Yes, they start copying us. And then you have to react to that. Well, I, I wouldn't say that we react to it. We just do what we do as best we can. But it seems like you're doing a good job. And we have a new theater that we're just going to start construction on in Delano, California. So in that'll be our fifth location. Okay, great. Congratulations. Thank you. Congratulations. Well, I got I to gotta ask you one last question. I ask everybody this question. If you could go back in time and talk to your younger self when you was coming out of UCLA, what would you tell yourself to stick to that make your life easier? Well, I would say to myself to listen to the advice that my 
father and mentors provided me and to take it more deeply into heart. I did, but even more deeply. And to be ready for change. Be ready to navigate a continual, unending, changing landscape and world. That's good advice. I, I, I wish my son could hear you saying it right now. Well, I'll tell you what. I've got to tell you, I'm inspired by your commitment to the Latino community. I'm inspired by you and everything that you've accomplished. There's so many people out here that trade their dignity and integrity uh, for success, and you are not one of those people, and you've showed people, and people will hear, and you set a different path out. So I'm very proud of you, and I'm so grateful for you giving us this time to be together and tell us about your businesses and tell us about how you've made it from all the different aspects of your business. I just want to thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. Well, I thank you. I, I honor what you're doing. So thank you for allowing me to be a part of this. Well, that's it for today. Thank you for listening to MOB, Masterminds of Business. We also want to thank Mr. Moctezuma Esparza and, of course, our engineer extraordinaire, Frank Sterling. If you want to get in touch with us here at MOB, you can visit us at sabacon.net or reach us at Sabacon Ideas on Twitter and Facebook. That's S-A-B-A-C-O-N-I-D-E-A-S. And if you want more MOB, please give us a review on iTunes. And, of course, subscribe. Please don't forget to subscribe. Until next time, remember, nothing happens unless you make it happen. Thank you.